Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Boris Johnson found himself amid a constitutional meltdown this week, highlighted by an unedifying standoff with Greater Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham over how to deal with coronavirus in his city. I don't think it is right to ask people to go into a lockdown to accept further changes with, within their lives without supporting them. This is no way to run the country in a national crisis. It isn't. This is not right. They should not be doing this, grinding people down, trying to accept the least that they can get away with. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, I'll be looking at how the Prime Minister botched negotiations with Northern leaders and whether he is taking the UK into a full-blown governing crisis over selective COVID-19 restrictions. Political editor George Parker and political columnist Robert Shrimsley will be discussing. And later, we'll be examining yet another major economic stimulus package from Chancellor Rishi Sunak to protect jobs as more and more of the UK heads into corona-induced restrictions. Where does this leave the public finances? Dissecting this is our economics editor Chris Giles, plus special guest Gemma Tetlow, chief economist at the Institute for Government Think Tank. George and Robert, pleasure to speak to you as always. Morning. Hi, Seb. Well, I'm back on the podcast, but I shouldn't really be. I should be somewhere driving around northern England doing book research. But unfortunately, due to these increasing restrictions that have come in, that most of the parts of the country I want to visit are now in lockdown. People don't really want to meet and it's not safe to meet. So that's been my week. So I'm back in London writing away. George, what has changed, if anything, for you during these latest restrictions? Well, I suppose living in London as we do, we're now part of tier two. So that's sort of... uh limited my ability to go down to the pub with Robert, for example, at least if I wanted to sit inside with him. But to be honest, I've noticed that it's quite a bit of a Scandinavian tendency coming out in West London. Quite a few people sitting outside in there drinking beer in pub beer gardens with their hats and scarves on. So nothing too much so far. Indeed, I feel like every pub is going out fresco and the weather is kind of okay in London at the moment, which means you can sit outside, Robert. But I think as the winter grinds on, that's going to get more and more problematic. Yeah, I mean, I do think it's a bit extreme of the North to lock itself down just to escape your reporting skills. That seems, you know, hard on most of them. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree with George. My daughter's going out all the time, just sitting in freezing cold parts, carrying blankets with her to meet up with her friends. Obviously, I mean, the thing you're most aware of is it's getting harder to see older relatives again, um, people who don't want to sit outside. But so far, it's been bearable. Right. Well, let's not let COVID derail this podcast and get on to the main topic. Coronavirus infections have been rapidly rising in the northwest of England for some time. It was only a matter of days before Greater Manchester was moved into the most severe tier of coronavirus restrictions that would force much of its hospitality industry to close. Instead, there has been endless bickering between local leaders and Westminster about economic support. 
Boris Johnson found himself at odds with Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham, a seasoned Westminster operator, before the talks eventually broke down. Manchester was forced into Tier 3 without a deal, but the negotiations came down to a debate about just £5 million of support for its businesses. The Prime Minister did not want to favour one city over others, stressing the financial support being offered to the whole country. Mr Speaker, I'm proud of the support that we've given, the One Nation Conservative support that we've given uh, to, the, to the entire country. Uh, £200 billion in support for jobs and livelihoods across the whole of the country already. A further £9.9 billion now for the job support scheme. So George, kick us off with Mr Johnson versus Mr Burnham. Why did they find themselves at odds this week and was it avoidable? Well, I think it was eminently avoidable. It's down to the fact that Boris Johnson took a strategic decision that he wanted to buy in the support of local leaders for the next round of lockdowns, so-called tier three lockdowns, partly because he thought that was the best way to get people to comply with the regulations if they had the complete and public support of local civic leaders, but also, frankly, because he wanted to share some of the blame out and people are going to be suffering hardship through the winter. And he wanted to be able to say, well, your local council leader, particularly your local Labour council leader, supported it in the first place. So they had a deal with Liverpool in the first place, which seemed to be the most dangerous, to be honest, because the hospitals were filling up on Merseyside. So the Liverpool city region did a deal. But the problem then was it set up a sort of a dynamic where a negotiation ensued with other civic leaders, first of all with Lancashire, but then most notably with Greater Manchester's Mayor Andy Burnham, where obviously the incentive was for every civic leader to try to get a better deal than the one that had been previously secured with their neighbouring authorities. And frankly, it could have been avoided had Boris Johnson said, look, we're going to have a per head formula for every part of the country, and that's the amount of money we're going to get, and we need you to agree to it. Instead of which, you end up, as you said, Seb, in a ludicrous haggling over £5 million, which eventually the deal collapsed on, and the consequent disastrous public relations for the Conservative government, and indeed for many of the Tory MPs who now represent seats in Greater Manchester and other parts of the North, because it gave Andy Burnham a free hit to say, well, here you go, Southern Tory Prime Minister doesn't care about the North, selling us down the river. And the PR on the day the deal collapsed was absolutely dreadful because it looked like the £60 million that had been on the table earlier in the day was being taken off the table by Boris Johnson. That was subsequently rectified, but sadly for Mr Johnson, not in time for the local news bulletins. And Robert, the reason the whole thing struck me as particularly unedifying is the fact that this shouldn't have been about money. It was about people's lives. And it was clear that Greater Manchester would have to move up a tier, as I said at the beginning. And this backwards and forwards, which has gone on, I think, for the best part of two weeks, has obviously had health consequences. So you can look at it one of two ways. You could say, well, why didn't they just cough up that £5 million and acknowledge Manchester got a bit more money than Liverpool? Or why did Mr Burnham not just say in the end, look, lives are more important than this. Let's just get the restrictions in place and sort the money later. Yeah, I mean, I always get a bit queasy when people say it's not about money, it's about people's lives, because the two things are equatable in circumstances like this. The more money you get, the more you can improve people's lives, but it also costs more and that money you can't put somewhere else. So I'm a little less cynical than George, actually, about this one. I think that this crisis, if that's the right word, started in a good place. I think Boris Johnson has realised he has to work more effectively with local leaders, particularly important local leaders like the regional mayors. And so it started off with the right approach, trying to get buy-in, and then it just descended and it was completely mishandled. And so that by the end, it proved to be a political disaster. It's worth adding that there's a lot of raw politics in this too. All of the metro mayors are up for re-election next year. They want to be seen to be doing the very best for their city. 
And equally, Boris Johnson doesn't want to be seen to be caving in to them and wants to be shown that he can't just be rolled over and forced to give as much money as they demand, which is why at the end of it, of course, he decided to try and bypass Andy Burnham and give the money direct to the district councils that were lining up with Andy Burnham, just as a warning to other mayors, don't play too rough with me because I'd like to help, I want to give money to support you, but I'm not going to be a shakedown from every single region. And you can see how that makes sense when you're sitting in Downing Street or when you're sitting in the Treasury. But as George was saying, the consequence of it was that he was out politic by someone who was actually smarter about this than he was. He's probably as popular in the North now as he was when he was sent scurrying up to Liverpool to apologise for an editorial about them in The Spectator. So, you know, as a defender of the North, um, Mm. Boris Johnson's credentials have been pretty badly tarnished. Well, one thing that did strike me as slightly puzzling, George, is that Andy Burnham was obviously asking for as much money as possible as you would expect because he was very worried at the prospect of Manchester going into Tier 3 and other big cities being in Tier 2 and seeing their economies growing at a slightly better pace than his. But he was also saying at the same time the rates are flattening and Manchester didn't necessarily need to go into Tier 3. And we're seeing quite a mixed picture across the country now that the northeast of England, which has had rising COVID infections, has stayed in Tier 2 and negotiations have paused as it seems to be levelling off. But then we've also seen South Yorkshire go into Tier 3 and much of the other parts of the country going to Tier 2. So the picture's becoming incredibly mixed and these local leaders do face this very tricky dilemma. Andy Burnham, as you say, there were mixed messages coming from him. First of all, he seemed to be suggesting that the situation in Manchester wasn't as bad as Boris Johnson was painting it to be. And he was also making the argument that tier three restrictions wouldn't work. But in the end, he was haggling over five million pounds to put Manchester into tier three. I think the progress of areas into tier three has been slower than I expected. And that's partly, of course, because there have been these negotiations. But also, as you mentioned, the fact that in some areas like the Northeast, there are some signs that actually maybe the rate of infections is levelling off, which is at least one bright spot of this, that maybe actually some of the tier two restrictions that are currently in place in places like Birmingham and London may be having some kind of an effect. Robert, what's your view on whether these restrictions are working? Because London seems to have gone into tier two earlier than other parts of the country based on its infection rate. And I was wondering, is that because they want to keep it out of tier three, which, as we know, is the most pernicious in terms of restrictions that does harm the economy pretty badly? Well, there's all kinds of graphics being rolled out nowadays by Boris Johnson's medical team. And in the briefings, there's one that Jonathan Van Tam does, where he shows the different regions and the penetration of the infection rates by age cohort. You know, these squares get darker and darker as they move along the timeline. And what's interesting is that almost all places start with, you know, the much younger groups getting the infection, but then you see it creeping up into the older, the more vulnerable, the ones who are more likely to end up in hospital and so on. The progression is very clear. And you can see in the places that are ahead of London and going into tier three, that's exactly what happened. The square gets darker among the 20 to 30s, and then it slowly creeps up to the 30s to 40s and so on. They can see the same progression in London. And so they're trying to get ahead of it. One has to ask the question that tier two has not proved very effective in stopping these infection levels. I think partly it's an attempt to just say, this is serious. We're heading back into lockdown again. You've got to behave. You've got to observe these rules. And I think underpinning all of this is the desperate desire not to go into a national lockdown, not to succumb to what people are calling for, you know, this circuit breaker, which we're seeing in other parts of the UK. But the truth is, the country seems to be steamrolling back towards it again. And I think what happened in London was an attempt to try and stop lockdowns being necessary nationally. Whether it works is a different question. 
Well, George, we heard from the Prime Minister at a press conference this week, and he defended this idea very vigorously of local lockdowns, pointing out the fact the southwest of England and the east of England have very low COVID infection rates. And I feel like we say quite a lot on this podcast, but it's not been a great week for Boris Johnson, particularly those optics around Andy Burnham. And I cannot fathom why the Prime Minister was sent out to that press conference without an answer on this £60 million package for Manchester. As you said, it was later clarified it would get that money. But at that point, he was sent out there, didn't have a clear answer. And that allowed this whole narrative to develop that he was really penalising the north of England. Yeah, it was a shambolic press conference. You could see it sort of playing out in real time. And I remember tweeting at the time during the press conference, he's got to sort this out before the evening news bulletins in the Northwest because he's going to be pilloried for this. And of course he was. The communication strategy around the week was absolutely appalling. And from the point of view of the process-driven thing that we're interested in, the sort of Rishi Sunak versus Boris Johnson thing, it was quite fascinating because... At the weekend, Rishi Sunak's allies were making it absolutely clear that the Chancellor wasn't standing in the way of a deal with Manchester, that tens of millions of pounds would be made available, the important thing was controlling the virus, and they were going to leave it to number 10 to negotiate with Manchester. In the end of the day, it appeared that it was Boris Johnson who was refusing to do a deal over a question of £5 million. And then lo and behold, two days later, the Chancellor's at the dispatch box announcing what the FT's calculated as being £11 billion of extra support across the country. That's £11,000 million. Pounds. It looks from the outside as if Rishi Sunak was the cavalry riding over the hill, as one Tory MP put it to me. And Boris Johnson was the person who bungled the deal with Manchester. If you look at the whole evolution of this crisis, one of the things you notice is that the government has been very, very bad at dealing with what, for want of a better one, might call the regional barons or first ministers. Actually, almost all of them have played Boris Johnson at politics as well as he plays it himself. So, you know, Nicola Sturgeon's been superb in using this to project an image of competence for the Scottish government, which, you know, many would actually argue, if you look under the hood, is not justified. Mark Drakeford in Wales, the First Minister, has similarly you know, raised his profile enormously in pushing the Welsh voice. And now you see it's like Andy Burnham, a very, very experienced political operator, using the power of the platform they have as a directly elected mayor to take on the Prime Minister. And it's one of the things that not just Boris Johnson, but all leaders are going to have to get used to, which is that they have created powerful barons across the rest of the UK who are at least as adept at politics as they are. Robert, can I just interject there? Just one funny little footnote to this whole episode with Andy Burnham is that back in 2015, when George Osborne was proposing devolving even greater powers to Manchester, including power over the NHS and the social care system, Andy Burnham, who was Shadow Health Secretary at the time, opposed it he actually opposed giving Manchester the very powers that he's now exercising as city mayor. It's uh, quite amusing. Indeed. And I think, Robert, I just want to pick up on your excellent FT Big Read that you wrote this week about how the whole coronavirus pandemic and the government's response has really tested the UK's governing settlement here that, as you said, you've seen these directly elected mayors having much greater prominence and powers than ever before, but also the devolved administrations in Edinburgh and in Cardiff that have really taking a different approach to England here. What struck me in your piece was you interviewed Michael Gove and he said the government would do more to work with these institutions and repair relations. Do you think they actually mean to do that or are they just paying lip service to that idea? I think they mean to do it in as far as it coincides with the things they already believe. There are lots of things that have been exposed by 
the crisis. One of them is that the actual institutions, the mechanisms of the union, don't work as well as they should. A lot of the meetings are ad hoc. But there's quite good cooperation, for example, between health ministers or chief medical officers or departments that know they really have to work with them. So DEFRA, agriculture, knows this is a devolved responsibility. It has to work properly with Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland. There are vast parts of the UK government, however, that just don't really have to think about devolution very much. And Michael Gove called it the devolve and forget. And so when they suddenly have to think about it, they make mistakes, they get data that's only from England, they don't have the right sensibilities about this. And Michael Gove thinks with some institutional fiddling, you could make a difference, you know, sending more civil servants up of London would help. So to that extent, I think they are serious. The problem more fundamentally is that devolution is is a one-way stream. Once you give powers away, the people who have those powers only want more of them. And there's no evidence that the British government actually really wants to do this. But And if you look at the entire nature of this government, it's very keen to take sovereignty back from the European Union. It's not as keen to share it with anybody else in its policies. It's often about removing checks and balances from what it can do. And the devolved administration is a significant check, as we've seen over the crisis. So although I think they would like to make the union stronger, I do question whether they've really got the stomach for the things they would have to do to deliver that. And of course, from a Scottish point of view, if the country is run by separatists, no tweak is going to be good enough for people who actually want their independence. Finally, it was George Osborne, the former chancellor, who was a big advocate of directly elected mayors, who said this week that they had come of age during this coronavirus pandemic, but he lamented they still lacked a lot of powers. George, do you think they should? And is it likely they will get more powers? Because We know that constitutional reform and more devolution was something that was on Dominic Cummings' agenda when looking to shake up the British state. But doing that also means that you may be handing power to Labour mayors and it doesn't always work out well for the government. The government talks a very good game about devolving powers, but as Robert was mentioning there, the instincts, the revealed preference of this administration so far has been to try to hoard power at the centre as far as possible. So yes, there are discussions about giving mayor's further powers. And I think the one thing that will be useful will be a proposed shake-up of local government in England as well, the move to unitary authorities, getting rid of this patchwork of two-tier councils. I mean, I think that's a very sensible thing if they can force it through. But again, that's likely to face opposition from Tory MPs, lots of Tory councillors. So we'll see. I mean, I'm not sure that Boris Johnson has this really in his DNA. I think one other key point is that it's about finance. It's been very easy for mayors and for first ministers to say, we're going into deeper lockdown, we want more support, because all of the bill is being picked up by London. There's a major disconnect there. And I think one of the issues that's going to have to be looked at is the extent to which more financial powers are given to all these different bodies. Scotland and Wales have tax raising powers, they have very limited borrowing powers, the mayors have even less power. So that's something you're going to have to look at seriously, if you're committed to devolution. George and Robert, thank you. For the third time this autumn, Rishi Sunak returned to the House of Commons this week to announce yet another economic package to help protect jobs. As much of the UK is now in tier two restrictions, which means households can't mix in pubs and restaurants, the hospitality industry is clearly hurting. The Chancellor was forced to offer more support for struggling businesses, totaling an additional £11 billion in spending. But with the UK deficit hitting an extraordinary £246 billion, the questions are mounting about how all this is going to be paid for. Speaking at the Conservative Party's virtual conference earlier this month, Rishi Sunak said tough decisions will have to be made. We will protect the public finances. Over the medium term, getting our borrowing and debt back under control. 
We have a sacred responsibility to future generations to leave the public finances strong. And through careful management of our economy, this conservative government will always balance the books. Well, Chris Giles, welcome back to the podcast. Let's begin with the announcement Mr Sunak made on Thursday. What changes has he made since he announced that winter economic plan just a couple of weeks ago? Well, quite a few changes, really. Seb, in early October, we had improvement in the job support package. I say improvement, I mean increase in generosity in the job support scheme, so that in tier three areas where what we now call wet pubs have to close, they were able to have their employees get two-thirds of their former wages even when they weren't working at all. So there was an extension for businesses that were forced by law to close. And then on Thursday, a much, much bigger extension to the job support scheme came in place, which was essentially to increase the amount of money that the state pays for people when they are working on short hours from about 22% to about half of the money and reduce the amount that employers have to pay. So that was the big change. The second change was that people would be able to be eligible for this job support scheme if they worked one day a week or 20% of the time when it had previously been they had to work 33% of the time. So those two big changes uh, alongside equivalent changes to the self-employed scheme and some more grants for businesses in Tier 2 and Tier 3 coronavirus areas were the package as a whole. Quite a big package, we think, although no one's giving any numbers, but when you quiz Treasury officials quite closely, we think it's about £11 billion over the six-month period. Well, Gemma Tetler, welcome back. For long-time listeners of the podcast, it's great to have you back on. The general sense seems to have been that the package announced by Rishi Sunat was a bit of a, a sticking plaster for the economy when the government wasn't sure how serious the second wave of coronavirus was going to be. With the fact the UK now may be hitting 90,000 infections a day, it's pretty clear that large parts of the country are going to be in Tier 2 very soon and significant parts could be in Tier 3. And really that means the Treasury is doing quite a lot of what it was doing earlier in the year, which is just throwing the kitchen sink at the problem, which is money. That's right. I mean, the Treasury has been in a really difficult position throughout this crisis. On the one hand, wanting to do what's necessary to support businesses and support jobs through the temporary hit of coronavirus, which has shut down large parts of the economy and meant that businesses, particularly sort of hospitality, arts, entertainment businesses, have not been able to operate in anything like a normal capacity. So on the one hand, the Treasury wants to help those businesses. And the idea behind doing that is not only to help in the short term, but hopefully to improve the long-term economic prospects of the UK by sustaining those businesses and um, meaning that people don't face long-term unemployment. On the other hand, the Treasury is very cautious and nervous about the idea that the Exchequer is propping up jobs that have no long-term future or for which it would be better to let those people leave their current jobs and try and find jobs elsewhere. That's the tension that the Treasury has had back at the end of September. The Treasury judgment and the Chancellor's judgment was clearly they were hoping that the economy was on the way out of 
the coronavirus pandemic, that more businesses were going to be able to open up and that they could start to restrict their support to only those jobs where people could be brought back for quite a significant chunk of their hours each week. The Chancellor has made a sort of U-turn on that and gone back to much more like the sort of support we've had earlier in the pandemic period, which is much more generous and requires people to be doing much less of their previous work. Well, Mr Sunak's overall approach has been criticised by the Labour Party, particularly the Shadow Chancellor Annalise Dodds, who said that in this second wave, he's been offering too little support too late. For months, we've urged the Chancellor to get ahead of the looming unemployment crisis and act to save jobs. Instead, we've had a patchwork of poor ideas rushed out at the last minute. A bonus scheme that will pay £2.6 billion to businesses that don't need it. Chris, do you think that's a fair criticism? I think on one level it's fair. So if we had known or if the government had listened to their sage advisors, their scientific advisors, that the virus was going to get to the stage it has got at this stage, yes, they would never have taken the view, I don't think, in late September that they could actually think they could exit a lot of the schemes as they had planned to do. But actually, on another level people were much more optimistic that the virus wouldn't get to the stage it has got at that time. And in that sense, then, the criticisms that it's obviously too little too late is not really fair. Gemma, what is the view inside the Treasury about unemployment? Because this has obviously been the big fear, and you hear a lot of people talking about 1980s-style levels of unemployment with millions and millions of people losing their jobs. And clearly, this upheaval resulting from the lockdown and from the pandemic was going to have big structural changes at some point, but it feels like the Treasury sort of delaying that again until we get over this second wave. The sort of purest view within the Treasury would be that the rationale for government support to subsidise wages of existing jobs Purest rationale would be that there's a stronger case for doing that in instances where you think those jobs are going to come back and where it would be difficult for employers to let people go at this stage and then rehire sufficiently skilled workers later on to bring them back into those jobs. So in a sense, that sort of pure treasury view would suggest that actually for jobs in things like the hospitality industry, which are relatively easy to train people up to be a bartender or to serve tables, for example, and where there's usually actually quite a lot of turnover in those jobs anyway, from month to month and year to year, would suggest that actually there isn't a big long-term economic cost from allowing people to lose those jobs and then be brought back in a few months' time once the pandemic eases. But that clearly is in tension with the political economy reality of what would have happened if we'd seen a big spike in unemployment this autumn and winter as people lost those jobs if the wage subsidies were taken away. And that's obviously a particular problem in the UK, perhaps more so than in some other countries where our unemployment support system is relatively ungenerous. So for lots of people, they would see a big shift and a big fall in their income if they were to move from the wage subsidy schemes at the moment into unemployment. I think Gemma's really hit the nail on the head there. The, the real issue is that we have a really stingy social security system And we do that in some sense for good reasons, because we think in normal times, that's a good way of encouraging people to really want to get out to work. But it means that if you've got a pandemic and you're forcing people on this through no fault of their own, it means that you are consigning people to very, very low incomes for a period. And it's that which is the real tension behind having to come back again and again and again to the Commons to have greater support packages. 
Now, Chris, let's put this in the context of the public finances. There was a very stark graph on the front of the FT this week that showed the deficit has ballooned to £246 billion now, much bigger than it was following the 2008 financial crisis. And there's obviously two schools of thought on this. You've got the very dry Conservative Party view that, in fact, we're going to be borrowing for a long time because the vaccine might not come and get us all back to normal. And that is going to need us to stabilise the debt um, pretty rapidly. Others are, when in fact borrowing costs are quite low, a vaccine may come and we can stop borrowing pretty rapidly. Where do you fall on this spectrum and where do you think Rishi Sunak is, crucially? Well, I think I would fall in between the two. It's terribly boring it to be moderate and reasonable, but I also think that's pretty much where the Chancellor is. There is no pressure on borrowing at the moment. The UK can borrow as much as it wants, pretty much, in the markets, alongside the Bank of England clearly buying up some of the debt as well. Interest rates on the cost of government borrowing is exceptionally low at the moment. And so, so long as you think you can get back to something like normal at some point, then it's exactly the right thing to do for the state to intervene. The state is the insurer of last resort. We are in a pandemic. This is exactly the time you need that insurance So borrowing a huge amount is not something we should worry too much about. But we are worried that in the medium term, there'll be some scars on the economy. The economic outlook will not be what we thought it would have been in February this year. And so tax revenues will be lower. And so ultimately, there will be some price to pay. We really don't know how big that is. But, you know, do expect a price to pay at the end of this because there will be one. Gemma, Rishi Sunak has said, as we heard at the top there, that there will be a price to pay. And I think the FT did some calculations and reckoned there'd probably need to be about £40 billion of tax rises to get the public finances on a stable footing on the other side of this. Have those conversations begun yet? And what kind of areas, when we get to the other side of this, could the tax rises come from? I don't think those conversations have really begun yet. And I think sometimes this debate in public becomes a bit confused because a lot of people think of this as, We've run up a load of borrowing over the last few months to deal with the pandemic. We therefore need to pay that back. But as Chris rightly said, the sort of cost in the long term is much less about what borrowing we've done in the last few months and more about the long term scars that this pandemic is going to leave on the UK economy, which is layering on top of a situation which we already had pre-pandemic, where the reality is that the demands from health spending and social care spending in the UK in particular just don't match up with our current tax system. So it's really that permanent gap between what we want to spend and what we're likely to raise in taxes that needs to be dealt with post-pandemic. We were already in a position pre-pandemic where the successive governments of all colours have delayed having this conversation with the UK public that if you want the kind of quality and scope of public services you've had in the past, you need to be willing to pay for more of that in tax revenues. The Chancellor sort of started to have that conversation back in the summer, but I think it's been derailed by the resurgence of the pandemic. And so it's yet to come that debate with the public about where do you want this money to come from? And if you don't want another area of austerity for public services, it's going to have to come from the tax side. And realistically, if you want to raise that sort of money in an efficient way without producing huge economic distortions, it's going to have to come from some of the broad-based tax increases. We can't kid ourselves that this can come simply from the very highest income, the very wealthiest big business. This is going to have to be tax rises really on all of us to some extent. Just to reiterate what Gemma was saying there, I think we can look at emerging economies a little bit and see what the danger is of not doing anything to the public finances. No one's saying that the public finances are in any sort of short-term crisis. 
But in the longer term, you do need to have some what people call fiscal space in there. So you need to have sustainable public finances. Otherwise, you can get to a situation where markets are not willing to finance you at cheap prices. And this is happening across the world in many, many countries, and they are really suffering at the moment. I'm not saying Britain's anywhere near there, but that's what you need to avoid. And that's why we do need to have a conversation at some point after the pandemic's over about how to sort out the public finances. And finally, Chris, there's obviously been some debate within government about balancing the economy with the health side of things here. And Rishi Sunak has been the most prominent voice for the person saying, look, we have to prioritise economic growth. Again, this week, he gave a very commanding performance in the House of Commons. And whereas the Prime Minister struggled in his negotiations with Greater Manchester, Rishi Sunak was again the happy guy doling out the cash and receiving warm applause for it. Where do you see his standing within the Johnson government at the moment? One of his shakiest grounds he's on is on this issue of this trade-off between lives and livelihoods, because I don't really see it's there at all. And I think the more smarter economic views around say it's a really complicated trade-off where it might not exist at all, because the more the virus spreads, the more economic problems you ultimately have. And ultimately, the restrictions that you have to put in place, because you can't let it get completely out of control without overwhelming your health and social care systems. You wouldn't want to put absolutely draconian restrictions on your economy so you shut everything down. But equally, if you let everything go, that doesn't mean that people won't get scared and stop spending anyway. So this idea that there's a sweet spot or that there's a simple trade-off between health and the economy just isn't true. It's much, much more complicated than that. And finally, last thought from you and Gemma on that. As Chris said, what will matter for businesses and whether people are coming back and demanding their services is not just the rules that government puts in place, but the confidence that people have to go out and to engage in something like their normal lives. And you can see from what's happened in other countries, including places like Sweden, that had less severe restrictions in terms of what government imposed, that you nonetheless saw a reduction in people's movement. If there's a perception that government doesn't have control of the virus, that could be also damaging to people's confidence to go back out into the economy and to get things going again. So it's not a simple trade-off in the way that it's sometimes portrayed. Gemma and Chris, thank you very much for joining. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you enjoyed the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and your smart speaker to receive episodes as soon as they're released. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Liam Nolan. The sound engineer is Breen Turner and the editor, Amy Keane. Until next time, thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. 